Welcome, welcome, one and all, to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm here with my good pal and fellow broadcaster, Weekly. And his name, ladies and gentlemen, is Michael Martin. Michael Martin, how was your week? It's been intense. But I was I was playing with my bees yesterday. Okay, so, what what'd you accomplish at this time here? Uh, I pulled off some honey, maybe 20 pounds of honey. There's okay. a lot more out there. I got to give them a couple more weeks to, to seal it off. And then I treated them for mites. Awesome. So. Yeah. And that's uh, how many times a season is that? Then I treat for mites or pull honey. Uh, no, I treat it for mites. Twice. Okay. Once now and I'll do it again before they go to bed for the fall. We'll have to do a whole thing on beekeeping at one point because it's, it's really primal, isn't it? You know, bring in the discussion of what's happening to the bees, you know, yeah. beekeeping. My wife wants me to have a hive, but we just have a third of an acre. And so I've been, you know, everybody says it's not a problem. And maybe I think you inspire me. I'll just have Pe- to get on. People do it on the rooftops in, in New York. Right. So. Right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're here again. And uh, Michael and I were talking this week via this telephone. And speaking of bees and gardens, I was out in my garden. And uh, he called and I answered. And it was so funny because it's such a general statement. But coming from him, uh, the, the <laughs> statement seemed to have one with consequences. But he was saying, I, I answered the phone, hello, hey, Brother Michael. And then he said, I think maybe there were a few words of introduction. But he goes, I've been thinking a lot about anarchism lately. And that just gave me, I just thought that was a hoot. Because um, uh, Michael will say something like that, and three weeks down the road, it's caused a tidal wave somewhere, somehow. That's the way he rolls. But so what we've done is invited uh, a friend of ours and also a guest on our first episode, Dr. Guido Preparata. How are you today, Guido? Fine, thank you, Mike and Michael. Yeah, I thought I'd uh, welcome back. And I'm going to ask you you about your personal history with anarchism, but I'm going to do a lead in here that for some of our listeners would tie together. Oh, uh, the last couple of weeks of this podcast where William Blake's name has come up several times and uh, William Blake and Carl Jung in particular with our guest, David Cayley. So we encourage people maybe to listen to those. But there was this, you know, some people got it and some didn't, you know, but there were just this notion that the whole hierarchy could be turned around and we could see divinity, you know, implicit in matter, you know, in the underworld. And these things were stated, but they just haven't had their ramification so obviously that's a tie to anarchism if we need many but i thought i'd begin with you know maybe an author you and i would have in common uh michael guido uh jacques Ellul. jacques Ellul was kind of an elitian writer on technology he certainly had a keen keen interest in that but i thought this was a little bit provocative in his book uh, christianity or anarchy and christianity uh just for he's comparing something he says our experience today is the strange one of empty political institutions in which no one has any confidence anymore of a system of government which functions only in the interest of a political class, at the same time of the almost infinite growth of power, authority, and social control, which makes any one of our democracies a more authoritarian mechanism than the Napoleonic state. Guido, do you concur that any one of our democracies, let's say Western Europe, Canada, the US, is more authoritarian in its mechanism than the Napoleonic state? I don't know. I, I would like to. I, I would like to have lived under Napoleon to see what it was. And, <laughs> well, yeah, you would have been a contemporary of Beethoven. It would have been nice. But uh, I, I see where, where Elul is going. Yeah, no, we. Yeah, I agree. I agree. In a sense, to the extent that, um, yeah, that we all of us feel that we are under the um, in a cage, in a, in a technocratic cage, and uh, so 
But that's that's something we have to go back to because and and I want to develop my argument in a certain way. I mean, I like Elul, and Elul says also that probably I think it's in the same book and another one similar or in the illusion of the political. But anyway, there's there's similar books. It says that the only contact we have with power, uh, whose leadership we never see, what what another what that American uh, sociologist uh, Fussell Paul Fussell wrote. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, it calls them top out of sight. So. We, we don't know who our rulers are. It's not the people on TV, it, but, it's, but there's a machine between them and us. And, and, and the only contact we have with them is through the machine. And the machine for us is the bureaucracy, okay. um, the administration. And, uh, and it's generally a very uncomfortable, uncomfortable and distasteful experience most of the time for the reasons that we know. And the system, <laughs> and the system, the system knows that. And so... What Elul said, which I thought was, was an interesting insight, is that how they have this constant PR campaign to sugar, to sugarcoat this, to make, to, make you, to make you feel that you're just, you know, you're walking into a store or it's just an experience where it's a transaction that's like any, anything, any other transaction, but it's not. It's, it's actually us getting directions, you know, it's like, and, and walking into a, state office, we are getting directed, we're getting corralled, and so on. For me, you mentioned anarchism, and, I, and my, my, my thing is, is, I don't think anarchism, although it, today anarchism is just considered a dying or completely dead and buried fringe splinter of the left, uh, itself completely riven in a, multi, in a myriad of rivulets and, and, and factions that hate one another and and, and itself hating everybody else. And so it's a disaster, but I don't think so. If and it's, it's so important anarchism has to be defined in such a way that posits for anybody thinking the political problem. And for me, it's an either or, or you are an anarchist or you think in anarchistic terms, which is like you are trying to break out of the cage mm-hmm. or you are comfortable with the cage. The cage and, and what is really missing and what's what I like to contribute to the uh, literature of anarchism, because in the end, that's what it is. It's an entomological viewpoint. I look at society as, as, uh, as I look at people as social insects. I don't do that, you know, by way of provocation or because I think it's, you know, a, a cute vignette. I think that's actually an insight because I've been studying bugs, social bug, social insects. And, and, and there, is, there are instincts and templates that are really striking and very similar to the way in which we are organized. And when you realize, but it's, you know, ant heaps and so on and so forth, the ants are probably the most important because the ants have a, many strains amongst them that are, they're called in technical jargon, doulotic, they're slave-making ants. And so there's an immense literature, which is absolutely fascinating in how ants uh, organize it. certain types of ants organize themselves to penetrate other ants, to steal the brood or to steal workers to work for them or to rear their broods. It's amazing. And how queens come and how the kind of chemical, uh, the kind of chemicals they release to uh, confuse the guardians of the other nests uh, and make them, and they call it Dufour glands, other than the guy who invented them. And, they, and they're very complex and the, chem- and the chemistry of, of, of them is varies from, from species to species. And some of them, make uh, you know they, they 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 set dissension among the workers so they can penetrate better <laughs> and they're called propaganda pheromones 
So Damn. I was I was absolutely <laughs> Bob. I I have never been so fascinated by by anything as these 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 you know conventional entomologic articles about uh, parasitical social insects. Now to come to my point, the the books that have moved me the most and the one that has moved that have changed my life, I mean, in, in the way in which I look at you know society and and and, and social life is is Thorsten Veblen. The theory of the leisure class. And what is what is Thorson Bevel's uh, theory of the leisure class? It's a depiction of how parasites across cultures and times exercise their tenured power. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And so, in the end, it's why is there an elite, a parasitical elite of people with immense leisure, which is time and resources that they can conspicuously squander to prove that they are standing at the top of the pyramid? how that manifests and is de- declines itself in all sorts of manifestation from dress, economic organization, um, rituals of sports and war and power and hunting. And, and, and for me, it's, it's just, it's like, it's like pretty much like, you know, the 20th century popular music. If you only left the Beatles and burned everything else, I mean, it'd be sad for a lot of good music, but she kind of, you know, the Beatles is just nothing else really. Mm-hmm. Likewise, for social sciences, you can burn everything, but if you only kept Veblen's book, you pretty much, that's pretty much it. The recognized yeah. work of genius, how have, they, how, is, how have they neutralized its sting to keep it on like an insect metaphor here? What do you mean? It, I mean, the, the theory of the leisure class is recognized in social science, you know, in that, in that field as a work of genius, but it, you know, if it's mm-hmm. that, if that's powerful, if it's that insightful and undermining you, you, it's really weird because it's considered a classic and nobody yeah. reads it. No one knows okay. it. Okay, okay, that's it. Now you go into anthropology departments and they go, oh yeah, 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 Veblen, yeah, 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 what? It's obvious <laughs> that you just, you talk to them and they must have read like a, a chapter in, in, in the cliff notes for their qualifying exams as anthropology, but I mean, nobody reads them. Uh-huh. And, 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 and anyway. So and what is anarchism? Anarchism is de, is de facto is, is people say that they just don't want to live in an anthill ruled by parasites. It's just that. It's very to sign on to that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And so every time that they come up with an idea of what's going on, you know, where they doubt that the official version is true, because of course it's the parasites. It's the parasites that have you know, hired the intellectual stratum of the worker bees to manufacture something. And, and this is another term that is that I borrow from this literature. All this interaction that there is between the invaders uh, and, and, and the altruic, altruistic nest, host nest, is called chemical communication. Wow. And the, and the thing just like, it just like punched me in the forehead. And I thought, chemical communication. So it's not about content. It's not about truth. True, these are insects. Yeah, of course. Uh, but still, I think of all you know that you know that you know that Paul Simon song, Kodachrome. If I, mm-hmm. if I think of all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. <laughs> and you can you know, and 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 I've written this somewhere. You know, Alistair Crowley. You know that that the sinister Omega says that an empty brain is a threat to society. You got to fill it up with a lot of crap. Yeah. So as to completely disable discerning faculties. And this is what happens. All these social science degrees and all, and theology included, and everything else, they teach us a bunch of things that are serve absolutely no purpose in terms of intuiting truth. 
Absolutely not. And I even had, and this was even revealed to me when I was at the Gregorian and I came under attack by some priest colleagues and, and who were saying, what are you doing? What are you, you know, the purpose of our social program here at the Gregorian University is to have these priests being able to chew a little bit of, you know, all these notions and drop names at a dinner table. <laughs> same as it ever was yeah same as oh, it was that's academia but yeah it was it does it was repulsive what he said but it was exactly what it's all about yeah so everything is structured and that's the top jesuit school in the world yeah yeah sure but and this is and this is exact but but it's not it's everybody and yeah the dress you know shame on the catholics but aside from this it's everybody you don't go to school to learn truth you go to school to learn chemical communication. Yeah. And what is chemical communication? It's all sorts of, it's body language, it's, it's, it's buzzwords, it's, it's sound bites. It's a lot of nothing that means nothing, which is just a language to perpetuate a rule of distribution of resources from the bottom to the few at the top. That's it. It's a perpetuation of the parasitical structure of this cage that a bunch of us are saying, you know, I don't want to live here. This is, this is just, this is, you know, bad in a variety of ways and then you know, define bad. And there we have, you know, literature of bad this and also qualifications of bad. So what is that? What is conspiracy theory? You know, conspiracy theory, it's pretty much expression of people who are doubting and resisting the chemical communication that's coming from the top. Some of it is garbage, of course, and some of it, but that's not the point. The point that any time that you start to say, well, I don't think so, you know, I don't think so. This is, you know, because I, because I have an intuition, I have a rough idea of how this cage is structured and I can only, I'm going to, and I'm not, I don't have time to do it, but I can assure you that the literature on the nature of the parasites that inhabit a nest is incredible. And the most famous of them, the manual case is the Lomecusa. And I mentioned that one in one of my blog posts, the Lomecusa is in the, in the, with the termites mostly. And that's the one, but no, also, no, no, not just with everybody. The Lomecusa instead is, is one who, she's not a, it's not a boss, but it's somebody who definitely sucks resources from the nest. And in order to keep everybody subdued, kind of raises these hairs on its stomach and offers them to the mandibles of the workers who lick them. I think I mentioned this in another one of our conversation and, 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 and they're intoxicated. So basically, it's a uh, narcotizing effect. A soma type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and they studied these things. And they said that the, the, nurse, the nurse ants, once they're intoxicated, they don't take care of the broods, the, the broods and the pupae and the larvae, and they come out all deformed. And it's a tale out, you know, it's a tale of modern day intoxication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is exactly the same. So, so anarchism is, is it's, you know, it's either you, so going back to your question, a lot of times we have a very hard time with other people and they start, you know, communicating. And the reason is, is that some of us have grown very uncomfortable in the cage. We feel we can see the parasitical structure. We understand how it works. It's, it's very, very, very well hidden. Well, kind of. Certainly the financials, which is the, one of the main channels, is very complex to understand, but you can still see them. You see the gated communities. You see that in, in, in airplanes, there are no longer two classes, but now three, there's like super rich, rich. And then there is, you know, uh, yeah, 
cattle, right? So you, you're going to be. And, and so you, you kind of sense that something is changing, that the distribution is even more skewed and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and you start to complain. And when you articulate these things, not like an imbecile by talking about, you know, like a lot of the, the imbecile uh, conspiracy literature, which is, or, you know, your usual uh, anti-Semitic tirade or uh, the reptilian invaders or whatnot. Okay, and that is which they always, which they valorize, which the channels of information valorize and, and plug a lot because it's easy to discredit everybody else, but that's another story. But aside from that, every time you express doubt, you are defying. It's an act of defiance. And it's an act of defiance that you're launching to the top. It's, it never comes to the top. It has to go through your counterpart, you know, that works for them, right? Because, because most of the people who manufacture discourse are middle-class people. And 90% work for them. And there's a 10% who doesn't. This 10% can actually rot or survive doing God knows what, or they can actually, they have a chance of even speaking if they have wealth of their own. But unless these conditions are not met, generally they've staged and organized this in such a way that there is no way of resisting. So in the end, you know, for me, it's, it's, not, it's not even a matter anymore of trying to convince or agitate, anarchistically speaking, or for me, for, for anarchists, for people who feel this way, it, for us, I think it's more a matter of finding one another and, and see if we can, another entomological terms is inquiline, maybe live in the cage and making our presence not felt, you know, mm-hmm. like creating a subloop where they don't come and they, you know, bust our chops where we can live in peace and do our thing because confronting them head on is they're, they're, they're too strong. No question about it. So for me, this is the issue. Well, I, sorry, I've taken very long. That was awesome. That's good. Like my, my second. No, I like, like, well, I, cause it's interesting for me and I'm every, everything you said, Guido, I resonate with. And, but it's interesting for me because my, my uh, journey down this road was very different. I'm back in, and I was uh, researching and studying Protestant mysticism in England. And there's a book by Nigel Smith called uh, something proclaimed. I can't remember the first first word, but but it's about radical religion in the 17th century in England. And these Protestant mystics, they were, and one of them you could include uh, Gerard Winstonley, if you know who that was. The digger. Heard the name. Were, I don't know much. I know he was digger. great. I mean, he was. He, they were they were luddites. They were they were against the. The, the industrial revolution because they saw what it was doing to communities and people. And it's the same thing with enclosure, very similar thing to, to enclosure. They were, they, they had enclosure riots and Winston Lee was part of that, but he was also a mystic. He was also a mystic and he wasn't the, alone. Um, the, the, the people who are the, the group that got me interested in these other groups, the Philadelphian society, uh, Jane led and John Portage, so uh, I was in, so I was interested in the the Philadelphian Society, Jane Led and John Portage, Thomas Bromley, who had a more of a kind of Christian, ecumenical, mystical approach to things, like very, really, really centered in prayer. But 
they were forming these kind of communities outside of of the the mainstream, right? They were outside of the mainstream religion in in England at the time, but also outside of the mainstream politics in in England, of course, at the time, politics and religion were almost the same thing. And so so looking at all these people, um, you know, which really, you know, and and they're, we could say their their defense of small, their defense of small communities, you know, like, and then Schumacher with small is beautiful, right? And it was through these people that I started thinking about these questions. And then I got to be friends with all these Amish out where I live who are Christian anarchists. I mean, they really, they, they, they've unplugged themselves from, from the educational establishment, from the medical establishment. Uh, they don't even pay social security taxes. So they're outside of that and, and they're flourishing and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And they, they certainly uh, like uh, people like us who don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, they feel kindred spirits to, to, to us. And the interesting thing is, is this is my research is down this, this line are, are what led me to Guido. When I read, when I encountered uh, Guido's two articles in anarchist studies from what's about 12 years ago now. Yeah. 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 So so, and that's why when I called you the other day, Mike, I was like, Michael was flipping through anarchist studies because it's a it's a coffee table thing in your house or something. Or oh yeah, we just <laughs> the kids' we, homeschooling we, program. We, <laughs> <laughs> because another person who I read, I th- I really thought was really fruitful, and he's a mar- you know a self-professed Marxist, was uh, the historian E. P. Thompson, who wrote that book, uh, the. The, making it, of the working class, the making, the making of, of the English working class, which I think is a great book. And he also wrote a really good book on William Blake. And he points, you know, and he would, and here's one of the rare instances of, of, a, of a Marxist scholar, but I think it probably was more uh, commonplace back in the fifties and sixties who actually didn't hold the working class in contempt, you know, and, but, and, and, and as Guido was saying, but it's, those middle managers who's, who run things, those are middle manager professors and teachers and stuff who kind of transmit the message from the guys at the top, whoever they are, to, 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 to fill those empty, empty brains with crap, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is what, what you see. I mean, you're seeing it all over the place right now with uh, what's, what's going on in schools in the United States anyway. It's insane. They are filling their brains with crap and they, they come to college with brains full of crap. You know, where did you hear this? Did you actually think this went through? No, my teacher told me. And it's uh, an, an impressive, you have to say impressive uh, program of social control and, uh, and engineering, social engineering. And like you guys, I've always resisted that. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is why I, I, want, I, I thought it was talk, good to talk about it. Yeah. I, uh, when you mentioned it, Michael, you know, you've been thinking more about anarchism. I too reflected on how, you know, I, one was, one was for me the um, kind of being in the Catholic milieu, the notion that subsidiarity was just, um, I don't, it's not, was it ignored? 
it was certainly defanged, you know, so the name Dorothy Day could have, you know, you started seeing these names of people I admired, Berjayev, anarchist, uh, Gandhi, anarchist, maybe, no, certainly Ivan Illich, anarchist, uh, Dorothy Day, um, certainly Eamon Hennessy, for sure. But the, uh, that in, in the actual Catholic circles in which I ran and still run, that nobody, subsidiarity made them nervous, that the things that could be done at the lowest level should be done at the lowest level. That always just rang so commonsensically uh. true to me. But um, I realized, I guess in my early 20s, that there was something very pervasive, very pervasive. Now, I could, I could even admit that maybe I was born with this kind of bottom-up instinct. Uh, I'm not a real do-it-yourself guy. I mean, my instincts are that, but I'm not super handy or anything. Um, but the uh, the fact that um, even a distrust of like volunteer fire departments, you could talk to people and say, oh, it would, be, it would be better if it was all nationalized or something. And yet the best people I knew were the volunteer fire departments. And you know that I live in a, I live in a hamlet in a, in a larger town and we don't have plowing services uh, for our sidewalks and they're done immaculately thing they, they were no they were committed to they were committed to i think they were confused it, it's surprising to see it confused they, they they had anarchistic aspirations but they're also very much plugged in into the matrix very much and the future they wanted for me as their son was to be you know for them was uh you know uh, uh, a technocrat for the world bank you know that they thought that was good and, oh. and man i'm really i'm really i'm really grievously mad at them for that but you know it's it's whatever but but yeah so their vision uh, vision was very conventional yeah. despite everything so it was you know i think people are confused and when we talk about brains being filled with crap and i'm talking about myself i mean yeah, yeah. mine is more i mean ever since i i i, I grad ever since after my, my doctorate i uh, you know ever since it's been just uh all these years, and it, it's just been like trying to empty the, the cavity here of the crap, and it's and still full of it. And so it takes time. And you know, I, I thought at this stage in my life I would be far more ahead than I'm. But you know, yeah. Hey, I, I have a question for you guys. Do you know uh, this book? Let's see it. I'm gonna read it. It's the Mechanical the Bride. Wow. Show me the author's name. Raise it up. Raise it up. It's raise Marshall up. McLuhan. Oh, wow. I didn't know that title. No, I didn't. Now I forgot I had this book. I, I remember when I saw it today, I saw uh, one of my kids must have been going through a box with books in it. And it was on top of this box right over, over yonder. And I forgot that I had it. So I picked it up. It's actually a book that he, he originally published in 1951 about exactly what Guido's talking about, about how our, our heads are full of crap. And, and he has, you know, and he, of course, connects it directly to Hollywood and advertising and all kinds of, I mean, and this is, this is early. I mean, I, it's got to be at least 15 years before he came out with his, his, uh, his official text on the topic, right? Um, it's a good title. And uh, he's got, let's pull out this one quote, which, right, it's, it's full Guido here. And this is on a section on uh, education, high school education made easy. So he's got all the advertisements and then he has a commentary about what, what this is doing to us. And, what are the, and it reminds me of Illich too. But uh, to put the whole thing briefly, a power economy cannot tolerate power that cannot be centrally controlled. It will not tolerate the unpredictable actions and thoughts of individual men. 
That is plain from every gesture and intonation of current social and market research, as well as from the curricula of our schools. 1951, when my mother was in ninth grade. Okay, so, so people know about this. And, and, and like you were saying, you know, uh, what's the name of that book you mentioned at the beginning? Uh, the theory of the working class. The theory of the working class. Yeah. Uh, uh, theory of the leisure class. Le- yeah, leisure class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so these things are out there, but but they're kind of shoved under the radar, and few are the professors in, or anybody who who will bring these ideas out out of the closet. And and it's interesting to me. I don't know if you noticed this, but um, I well, it's clear that on my blog. Once I started talking about you know what two years ago, I I sunk <laughs> you know, things I, I was not getting and half the hits I was getting before because I was being monitored by the guys, by the AI of Google and YouTube, etc. Would you say are you being overt that like you're saying anarchism in that case in the in the larger like that was the that was the word when you said you know what i just want to be clear on no that. no see it's okay cool that thing that happened two years ago sure sure yeah yeah i'm saying that i'm being cagey so youtube doesn't shut us down yeah um but and so this like 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 guido said then what we have to do is we you know you have to find where you are and move out that way. I mean, small is beautiful, but, but it's not, they're not going to let this kind of message get out. Right. It's just not going to, you know, through it, like, uh, you ever see the movie time bandits <laughs> and in that movie there have, there's this uh, character called the evil genius. Who's basically the devil. He's Satan. And all these good the these good dwarfs try to take him down by using spaceships and guns and all these other things but they never work and finally the evil genius says of course they don't work for you i created them (laughs) so and that's what we're up against in a way we're using the tools of of the exact person the exact structure we're trying to take down yeah Tell us how this relates to like the book you've been working on then Guido for a long time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in the works. It's, it started as in criminology. I was, um, you know, the, uh, the founder of the school is this Italian uh, Lombroso who is now falling out of favor because, uh, because he had, um, they ridiculed him because, you know, because of his uh, physiognomical, physiognomic approach. In other words, it was one aspect of his uh, analysis, which was, you know, very classical approach. If you're beautiful outside, uh, you must be beautiful inside as well. And if you look completely horrifying and deformed, uh, those are the traits of a natural born criminal. And so he has all these collections of these criminals with these deformed craniums and and, and he measure, and he's really serious about it. He goes and measures the, the length of the ears and the jaws and, and, and does and, and paints this physiognom- physiognomic map of the, of the born criminal. And, uh, and also, and so the, and then, uh, then he was obsessed with skulls and skulls of criminals. And he had these agreements, he had these secret deals with 
cemetery guardians who passed him skulls that he could just observe, especially skulls of criminals. <laughs> so he could find deformities in the skull that could prove his theory that through physiological malformation, you could have also criminal behavior. So everybody lamented the crass materialism of this Lombroso. And there was this famous case that he got the, uh, he observed the cranium of a, uh, a brigand from Calabria, very fierce. And he noticed that it had a little, de little de depression in the cavity somewhere in the back of the, of the skull, if I remember correctly. And he called it the little, the little ditch, the little, the little depression. And he says, uh, there, there, I found it, I found it. So ever since everybody mocked Lombroso, he said, oh, well, look what this idiot with, with his little depressions. So this was, and so, and on top of that, he was, you know, very uh, fairly paternalistic, uh, considered women like, you know, like children and fairly racist and, uh, and so on. So he just sealed his doom in an era of political correctness, but long before then. And truth is, truth is that I, uh, and, and all, all these critiques are justified, but I started to read Lombroso and I was just dazzled by how absolutely extraordinary he was. Yes. And you have a background too in criminology. Right. You know, it's yeah. a PhD. Okay. Yeah. No, it was a master's. Okay. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, uh, I did in Cambridge and, 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 no, and nobody assigns Lombroso. So, but it, they had his first editions in a special room with special temperature. And I said, you know, I, the book looked interesting and I started reading and, and they're amazing. Absolutely. Kaleidoscopically amazing books. <laughs> he is, uh, he was an extraordinary genius. We didn't do just that, but he also, in, in his most famous book has his, daughter who was his um you know his heir and and, and, and curator uh, after said that my my his, my father's best book was his book on um political crime uh, which were works of sociology and the man didn't leave didn't leave a stone unturned he looked at madness and temperature uh social degeneracy and epilepsy and he made epilepsy i mean I, I, it is very long because uh, but anyway Epilepsy made that the seed of all the maladies and moral degeneration. And then he, he wanted to have a unified theory of crime. And in doing so, he went uh, through a, a million avenues, some of them not fruitful, but others extraordinary. And I discovered after Veblen, probably the, 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 uh, the other big jolt in my life was Lombroso. And um, noticing, however, also how much Freud stole from him. Uh, and even Freud, you know, is is caption to Lombroso was fantastic. <laughs> you bet. Okay. Wow. He, he is. Yeah. And to make a long story short, Lombroso wrote uh, on the on the heels of writing his book on political crime, which is 1890. Four years later, he devoted a lot of attention. He devoted a special study to the anarchist uh, bomb throwers uh, of those days. You know, as you all, we all know, terrorism is born with the anarchists. Sure. Yeah, it's the first big wave. And, uh, and I realized that I didn't know much about it, and I, I, sh I should have, and, and I, it was about anarchism. I just realized how ignorant I was of this whole field. And so I, I read his book, and the book is superb. It's uh, less than 100 pages. It's in the public domain. So I said to myself, screw it, I'm going to translate it, and I'm going to make this a bestseller, because people have to read this. It's just so extraordinary. And uh, I started. I translated the whole thing. But as I went through, you know, he talks about a, a multitude of people, uh, criminals all over the world from Ireland, the Fenians and, 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 and the regicides in France. And he has a catalog. The book is really short, but some of them are just lists of names. And, and I, you read and some you know, but most you don't. And so 
in this work of translation, I started to make footnotes. And slowly but surely, each footnote started to take a month. And so I have to read and read and read. And as I do this, I mean, I acquire a lot of knowledge, but the years are passing. And so the work of biographical annotation, it started to be longer than the book itself. And then I also planned to, to write a, a, uh, an essay in support of the book. And the thing matured into a colossal synthesis that I'm in the midst of it. But I, and it, um, it, it opened, uh, it just opened a new world for me. And I'm trying to put the pieces together. And I understand, to make a long story short, that what Lombroso was looking at was a bestiary. It's like in, you look at these particular sort of ants, degenerate, deviant, particular ants that are put into play in times of political turmoil and they're, man, they're manipulated. There's no question about it because all these assassins, if you look at the story, some of them, they don't act randomly at all. And some of them are involved in, in political conspiracy with a very, very high degree, like the assassination attempts against Napoleon III. And, and you start to dig and the story is amazing. This guy, you know, this one, and, and I'm preparing the biographical footnote to this one is Orsini, this Italian. I cannot even begin to tell you the story of this man. It's unbelievable. Anyway, he's the one who is going to attempt, make an attempt on the life of Napoleon III. And, and you could see, and he is actually manipulated in a lodge in London of French uh, expatriates. And uh, it, it's crazy. You realize that. <laughs> I like None. Lombroso was not, no. it was, he was not interested in all of this. And, and so this book develops into something that this is going to be a great synthesis. Yeah. Finally going to make it. I, I'm, it started with this Lombroso thing and, and sooner, and, and I find myself reading Kierkegaard and not a lot of things. And I knew this is going to go very deep. Kierkegaard, and, an anarchist who never called himself that, right? But we can yeah, still they, learn they so much that. from him. Yeah. And it, so the story here is that, Coming back to us, Lombroso, as Lombroso goes through and he reviews, so he goes through, he does his physiognomic approach to them and said, look at this one, how, how ugly, look at his nose, huge. Yeah, it makes sense, he killed. So, and there's all this, the funny Lombroso thing that he's been ridiculed for, but then he says a lot of very other interesting things. He looks at the psychological traits, some he called indirect suicides, a lot of them were people with suicidal tendencies that launch into these things to seek death, which is also a very true uh, thing. And so, and then, so he looks at all that, and then he looks at their theories and what they believe. And he goes through, and he cites mostly Kropotkin, Malatesta, and a few others, and some Frenchmen. And he re-utters what they say, and you could tell that, they, that, that he agrees with it, because their critique is true. You know, they are lamenting uh -huh. the they're lamenting the injustices, the suffering, the, uh, the, the degeneracy that common folk are undergoing in situations of exploitation. And they do it in a way with a candor and a directiveness that's completely absent from the Marxist camp, which at the time, Lombroso wasn't still really prevalent. So they're doing it in a way that's so genuine that you could tell, it says they're right. And then he goes and they move him to go in a tirade against the Italian system, which he despises, and he writes it all. And so it, it's great. And then he even strays from his physiognomic approach and he says, and look at these, he has the portraits of the Russian nihilists. And, he's, and, the, and he says, they're gorgeous. In other words, they don't matter. <laughs> this is wild. Yeah. They're gorgeous, they're beautiful. And there's her and this and that. And I'm writing on, preparing all the notes to all of these. And amongst these people, there's Lenin's older brother. So it's a discovery. It's an, it's, it's an amazing uh, ride. 
And then for me comes the final point, which is crucial for us. He says, okay, I get it. And in a sense, he's like saying to the reader, you know, for a moment, how I'm almost siding with these guys because, because they, you know, they really grip my heart. But then comes the economics. But their economics, and you see, you see because Bombrose is still a professor, he's part of the system, and he heaves this huge sigh of relief. Thank God that their economics don't work. Mm, right, like, <laughs> right, 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 yeah. They're in the primitive, they want communistic stuff. It's like, how are you going to do that? And it's like, oh, thank God. Because for a moment, Lombroso was saying, I was going to go out there and throw bombs myself. But then he realizes how completely unrealistic and utopian they are. And then they say, yeah, you know, they're crazy. And let's kill them all or just let's throw them in prison and so on. And that gave me the inspiration of just coming to terms and say for me, you know, I was talking about those queens that have that have these pheromones, these uh, propaganda pheromones. Yeah, these, these chemicals in their butts that they emit to confuse the host nest. I think that for us in a grand critique of emptying our brains into thinking, two of the big Dufour gland, two of the big propaganda or damaged pheromones that have been thrown in the reformist camp have been Marx and the Austrian schools that have plagued the, the monetary economics and damaged what could have been a movement just to tell people how, and, you know, how the um, economic exploitation works. And the guy who was doing this, the school of anarchism that was burgeoning, but that Marx and his nipped in the bud was that of Proudhon. Proudhon, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Was key. He's key. The man is key. He's like, he was a far greater genius. For me, Marx was no genius, but Marx knew that Proudhon was, was a genius. He feared him. Like, you know, like he was tremendously afraid of him because he saw that he, Proudhon, was a son of the people. He had been an apprentice. He had done dirty work, dirty and understood the problem, though he could not solve it. He understood that the monopoly of money and the charging of interest was the thing that had to be solved in order to liberate creative and, and commercial potential of the people, which for Marx was the greatest fear because it meant that you were giving the system a chance. And for him, he wanted to congeal in this. I have no doubt that Marx was controlled opposition to congeal the labor of movement to control it, proposing this all or nothing. You know, it's either this or the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, speaking of utopia completely, it was a maximalist position to kill in the end the labor movement, which was Marx was hired for in ways I don't know, but irrelevant. This is why he spends his life, even after Proudhon dies young, he still kicks the corpse with a ferociousness <laughs> that Elul in that book you, you, you yeah, yeah. says, he says, well, you know, I really love Proudhon. I admire more Marx. And I thought, what the hell, Elul? But he says, I was, <laughs> I was scandalized by how Marx behaved. Yeah. And then I say, Elul, think then, right? Yeah. If you, if you were scandalized, put two and two together and start saying that you admire one more than the other because there's no comparison. So with Proudhon, it's, it's exactly this, the money monopoly, the financial channel. It's the number one channel for sucking resources, obviously, from the base to the top. It's the main one. And it's obviously they do their utmost for you not to understand how it works. They obfuscate it. And it gets, as we now talk about cryptocurrencies, you know, the word itself, they're making it more and more and more obscure and opaque. But even in, even in Proudhon's and Marx's time, it was like that. And so all that ferocious attacks of Marx, Marx on the interest 
and money and, 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 and merchandise and capital, which, you know, any person who starts reading that goes, what the hell is this? I mean, indigestible nonsense. Once you have the key to unravel, you understand. It. So, That's wild. Let me a bracket here, you know, to help people too. You'd mentioned uh, Mella Testa, great Italian anarchist. Yeah. You say he's yeah. worth reading. You say he's very worth reading. He is, he is. Yep. Kropotkin, he was one of my entrance point too. I mentioned like Dorothy Day and so forth. But early on, I don't know, somebody, it wasn't Kropotkin and I don't know who it was, but with the Darwinian system, you know, that somebody said, how about if we look at things instead of how everything competes to move forward? It might've been a footnote or something, but said there's this wacky Russian who wants to maybe look at things, how how things cooperate to move forward. So that put me onto him. You know, and that, I don't know, like what a, what a, what a blessing that was to enter my life. But the other thing I want to mention to our listeners is that um, Prudhon, P-R-U-O-D-H-O-N. Yes. And uh, you can you can hear about him and some of this stuff on Guido's website, uh, guidopreparata.com. There's an essay, the, the, the Vision of Reformer Silvio Gassel, where you yeah. get into Prudhon's, you know, insights that, you know, to put this whole strand together, you really got to see what Prudhon was doing and how Gisele solved his problem. But it's to say that yes. Proudhon himself was a, a monumental hero and he needs to become, you know, coffee table conversation for everybody if we're going to get our way out of this mess. And, and, and yet he, is, he, is, he, is, he, is, he was, when, when we were students, he had at best, not even a footnote, and now it yeah. doesn't exist. When I, was, when I told my youngest son that I was going to speak with you today, and I forget, and uh, Aiden will have to forgive me, but I think he said if I'd ask you about the different motivations of Marx, and Proudhon. Is that, is that something that it might have been it, that? Yeah, this yeah. is it. This yeah. is it. Yeah, right. This is it. I felt you answered that. Yeah. 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 Controlled well, opposition. Absolutely. Yeah. With, with, you know, he kept, and he kept screaming. You remember, I mean, you, you read petty yeah. bourgeois, petty bourgeois. He doesn't <laughs> understand. Stupid, yeah. stupid, cretin, confused, petty bourgeois. And I'm thinking, what the hell? Petty, stop it, Marx. And no, he dies. Petty bourgeois, petty bourgeois. What does that mean? Like obsessive. It's like it's repulsive. But and then and then you take a step back and yeah. and, and you see, you see, he's afraid. He the system is afraid. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is what this you know that actually he's afraid not just for this. He's afraid because possibly you know when you talk to folks and you start saying and folks you know meet well-meaning folks and this and and sooner or later all of us have find ourselves in that position where they look at you. You've done your you've done your anarchistic bit. They smile at you and they said, "But you know." And then there's human nature. <laughs> Man is such a jerk that you're not going to go any further. So this is it. We yeah, gotta right. be I think that's very common. We got to be in the cage because you know the cage. They don't see it in these terms, but that's what they're implicitly saying. The cage is here to just you know structure the fact that left to our own devices, we're just we're just beasts, and instead. You know, for our, our viewpoint, we don't even have to postulate that man is good. And frankly, I don't think many of us really believe it. But what we really believe is that possibly if you take a subloop out of the cage and you organize things in a completely different fashion, you're not going to get this guaranteed slaughter that there always is. This is what we think. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to postulate that we are good. And you can still believe that there has been original sin, sin like Sion says, and that we are these irrecoverable, irrecoverable uh, creatures. Still, still, we have not yet been given a chance to organize a subloop 
of or, or our own termitary in a way that's completely different from what we have now. Yeah. Of course, the skeptics will say everybody has tried it and never works. Well, I don't know. I don't think we've you know we've been given a fair a fair a fair ch- chance. But there's a there's an analogy. I wouldn't. This is maybe 20 years ago. Along, I believe one of the authors, two authors, Adrian Moore was one, but it was a major biography of Darwin. But when you mentioned Marx obsessing on the petty bourgeois, petty bourgeois, you get a sense in that biography, you know, that he, Darwin, you know, kind of saw what he saw in his system, right or wrong. But let's say, you know, from the working class, if growth came from dirt and competition, he saw, he saw how, oh, those filthy working class people, they might get this in their head or it's possible they could see that growth could come from even them. And that filled Darwin himself with such loathing, these authors said. That his well, system could be seen. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah. Well, it's Margaret Sanger, right? Yeah, right. Margaret Sanger goes goes to population control. Yeah. Right. And, and, and these great I've, theoreticians. Have you ever had these, I mean, I've, I've had this conversation where I'd be in a faculty lounge and some faculty were complaining about population control, and I'll say, "Well, well which population are you trying to control?" Amen. Amen. <laughs> it's not. It's not your demographic, is it? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and it's kind of, it's, it's so, it's, it's so disturbing and, and it's so uh, telling that like, like Guido was saying with, with uh, petty bourgeois, petty bourgeois, right? You just drop those catchphrases and which is a form of, of propaganda and, and which relieves people of the, the need to think. You know, and we've seen a lot of these kinds. And we got of the right people to hate. To well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you see, the this is this is a constant barrage in the media and other other in politics. You know, try whether they're uh, institutional racism or whatever the the catchphrase yeah. of the week happens to be, right? Uh-huh. Which relieves the individual of the need to think. Amen. Right. Yeah. Gender is on a spectrum. Is it? I have to think. Oh, yeah, I'm changing room. Yeah, no, I, uh, Darwin, yeah, Darwin is, is another one we should really um, proceed to destroy. Because... And let's, let's do a whole episode on him. If you want to say a little bit on him now, Guido, but also I want to do an episode because I also want to get you, I got one other theme of questions I want to ask you on anarchism. I've seen you in this yeah. room before. Cool. That yeah, say that. something about Darwin. We're getting a tour of Guido's house. Great. <laughs> You've seen the whole, you've seen the whole house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was just a, it was just a devious part. I'm, I'm just trying to. Guido Preparatus, he's in the case of moving, but some prospective yeah. house buyers could use this. There as you go. Yeah. The insides of the house. <laughs> it was all, it was all an excuse. It was a virtual tour. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to buy it. My wife wants her house. She likes those yeah, cases. A Jack and Jill bathroom. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, the uh, I was reading, I was reading uh, the Descent of Man uh, of uh, of Darwin. Yeah, no, no, I will definitely have to, we definitely have to talk about. It. For me, for me, that you know, it's not science at all. I mean, I, I, I've written this elsewhere. The Darwinian myth is a celebration of England's imperial ascent. That's what it is, yeah, right? Yeah. This theory is is, 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 is theory is this myth is is ridiculous. You know, out of nothing, through random mutation, emerges emerges life, which uh, solidifies and and develops. God knows how from uh, a selective process of comp- of of competition under uh, under 
um, scarce resources, borrowing from the Townsend Malthus uh, uh, population control. What is this if not the history of England? Small island with small mm -hmm. prospects, a meager fleet compared to the great kingdoms of the, of the, of the continent has to import all the know-how and then silently in a few centuries becomes, you know, after three, three, three centuries of struggle against uh, everyone becomes, you know, the ruler of the world. Uh, and it's, a, it's an auto-celebratory uh, tract under the, yeah. Yeah, under, un, under the, the pretense of, 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 of scientific discourse, which it isn't. <laughs> Yeah, no, it doesn't. But I mean, I mean, let's hand it to them. But it's, you know, what 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 I what just drives me mad is just this sly approach to things that they have, or or everybody in the world. You know, you say it, say it. I love power. I I want to be on top of the hill, and I will do whatever it takes. I will incinerate half the world if I have to. Say it. And then I will have, a, I'll respect you more because you will have been genuine and maybe I'll give you an opportunity to reflect upon what just came out of your mouth, but at least, you know, but they don't do that. No, they, 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 they don't no. the sanctimoniousness. And, you know. and they dress it up in science, right? Science, whatever, science, yeah. morals, uh, decorum, whatever it is. It's, it's just, uh, that's what it is. Let's talk, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about the, um, in a, you mentioned a book, forthcoming book on anarchism and so forth, but there's another one that is even, even coming out. I think we can name its title. It's going to be Church and Empire. But in there, and you're going to help me even frame my question, Guido, but it's uh, you mentioned Charles Moras. These are people I'm familiar with, as well as, um, oh, who am I thinking of now? Um, uh, Julius Avola, you know, an Italian kind of like oh, yeah, yeah, traditionalist yeah. mystic. But you, you can paint a picture pretty well in that book. Again, forthcoming Empire and Church. But you'll say that, you know, Charles Moras, uh, you know, was, was involved in like promoting Catholicism, yet wasn't a believer himself. But he seemed to love the Catholic Church for what in particular? For its ability to harness the anarchistic potential, the anarchistic seeds, the anarchistic energy of the gospel. You know, is that, am I kind of getting at something you work at? And you're saying the same thing about Ovola, you know, that... These, these, even if they're conservatives, um, oh, I don't even know what that sentence meant in that context, but these people who kind of love the role, they're probably not believers themselves, but they love the role of the Catholic Church insofar as it kind of like encloses this anarchistic potential, reinterprets the gospel. Yeah, the, the, the Action Francaise, the Maurras's uh, party, which is now completely forgotten, but for me, it was uh, very interesting reading uh, his biography. There's all these things that are just dead and buried, but they're so essential. And uh, again, they're not in the curriculum. No, you have to read Marx instead and whatnot. But uh, yeah, not to harness, uh, the, the Maurassians say that the thing that they really uh, abhor and, and loathe the most is Tolstoyan Christianity, the mm. anarchistics. Yeah, yeah. They don't like that. Their, their only purpose is to use Catholicism as a discipline for state obedience. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they are, they, yeah. So, yeah, it's about, you know, the, this, the, the whole debate of what should we have, a pope or an emperor? And I mean, for an anarchist, if your point is neither, but, you know, nobody cares about what anarchists have to say. They always get crushed. In the end, it's very much about how do we exercise you know, parasitical control in the best way. And Evola is, I've been told by Evola, he is, he is very much, uh, 
an admirer of Guénon, you know. Sure. René Guénon was considered the, the biggest scholar of Freemason. He's a Freemason and the biggest representative of Freemasonry. And uh, I, I, me, I'll, I'll start with him uh, in, in my anarchistic book. I mean, Guénon really mildly amuses me and irritates me at the same time. He's, he's one of those, he reminds me of one of these voluptuous courtesans that kind of lift her skirts just to show you the ankle and then drops it down and goes just like, you know, move away <laughs> i am i am so completely out of your league you know just you know go and just disappear altogether and uh, and it's like because i'm an initiate i i am in the lodge i know everything i am a master of the 33rd degree and you're just a papageno like in the magic fluid you're just mm-hmm. a parakeet idiot who just knows nothing is confined to your senses and understands nothing or at best i could you know i like you people i call you seekers okay keep seeking i know everything you don't and i'm going <laughs> to tell you i'm going to tell you a little thing here there about atlantis hyperborea uh, uh so about mysteries and initiations and the rosicrucians but just enough and and or about the uh I don't know the uh, the mysticism no the mystical the uh, the esoteric interpretation of the cross uh, and, and so on and so forth, but just enough that to get you interested, but you'll never understand anything anyway. All right, so that's Guénon, and it, it's like that. Whatever you read of him is like that. And, and I told that to a, to a Freemason who adores Guénon, and he was smiling, going, yeah, that's exactly how it is. You know, so <laughs> like, yeah, just, you know, vanish. Distinguish and, uh, him from Steiner at some point, too, you know, because some people could read the esoteric language in Steiner. How do you I, get, how is your nose tuned to one you know, in a way of attraction, how is your nose made to vomit from the other? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, Geno says that Steiner is a good man, but he is a Blavatsky. He came from Blavatsky, and Blavatsky is a big fraud. And they, she took all sorts of esoteric traditions and made a big mess out of them. And and he despises Blavatsky and says that uh, theosophy was a tool of British imperialism, which it was. Okay. And people like Steiner rebelled because they're first and foremost Germans. I mean, Austrians and created his own anthroposophical society. But he said that he's too close to her doctrine-wise. And so, but I don't know, at least Steiner shows you more than the ankle, a lot more. So this is why we, we love Steiner. Uh, Guénon, uh, you know, he's just, he, he's, he's irritating. But uh, I'm, all, I'm saying all that because Evola- This is Evola. like a great scandal sheet. We can you know, have Guido on to give us the poop on all this. <laughs> but Evola, Evola is a fan of Guénon. And uh, he is the same thing. They're the traditional- I was aware of that, yeah. yeah. Traditionalist, the traditionalist. So for them, it's like they look at you and they said, you, we, you've lost, you know, they, they talk. We have the tradition. We yeah. know what it means. Mm-hmm. We are either priests, warriors, or I forget what they are, and we have different we have different approach. Uh, the Hindu caste system, great. You don't have no idea when you criticize. It's not what you say it is. It's not this rigid structure, uh, abominable. It's because you're an imbecile, not an initiate. You don't understand. Great. And so they're all like that. Lost tradition, the lost ways, the Freemason carving the stones, the lore, the perfect harmony, the sacralization of the profession of the Masonic métier of the, all of that. So they come from that viewpoint. And uh, I don't know about Guénon because Guénon doesn't speak, but Evola is very much uh, a, a, that kind of type. You know, we should bring back the ethos of the warrior in an ancient mm-hmm. initiatic structure. The modern world is an abomination ruled by money and so on and so forth. 
So, so yeah, that's when it comes in. But and they all hate the Catholic Church. They saw it as some kind of a rival that is just depressing and contaminating the warrior ethos. So that's when they come into the discussion. And for me, that's it's, it was interesting to cite them, not because it's cool to cite them, but because the neocons uh, very much fashion themselves or are in a more in a, in a more vulgar way after these kinds of after morass and and the Evola type of uh, of of uh, you know grandstanding about the warrior ethos, whatever that is, has been recuperated American style by the neocons. And yeah, this absolutely. is this is all the kind of junk and you know just repulsive junk that was you we remember that was being thrown around uh, in concom in, in, in concomitantly with 9-11. Yeah. Right. And that's I mean I what was thinking when you're speaking earlier about whether or not well, maybe not the World Economic Forum, but somebody behind them as the new emperor. You know. Yeah, the new emperor of the COVID regime. Yeah, we yeah. sure. Yeah, we have yet to understand what they do, but no but doubt. I, but it's like it, it is it is totally an empire that's trying that's trying to 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 be imposed upon us, I think. This strange oh. Invisible oh, empire, yeah. Oh, with COVID, it's not even a conspiracy theory. They came out in the open. I mean, they corralled, they cloistered 4 billion people like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with perfect coordination. And people say, oh, one world government, conspiracy, idiotic conspiracy. No, we've seen it. <laughs> now, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if it's uh, headquartered at the, at the World, Health, World, World Health Organization, WF, who knows, who cares? What we've seen, however, is a perfect choral orchestration that had a single, a single direction, single. So we have the one world government. Absolutely. We've seen it. I mean, everybody's seen it, not just us, everybody has. Uh, I'm gonna try and formulate a question that, you know, I want it to be practical, but it might be hard to articulate, but it would be, you're, you're a young person, you're looking for a way to connect the dots, you're looking for a different way of doing things. Again, if you're a young person now, you know, I'm looking out a window at the college campus where I work, you know, you, you don't think you really have a job other than a cubicle. You know, some people think, well, that cubicle comes with great benefits and great power, so I'm in. But other people, you know, say, okay, so I'm looking for an alternative narrative. You know, they're going to find Evola, they're going to find in America you know, something like the alt-right that'll lead to things like that. Being, if you're a young man, you kind of like that warrior language. It's age appropriate even for a certain, how, how do you get somebody to just buy into, um, you know, we can quote Elvis Costello, peace, love, and understanding. But how do you get somebody to, you know, for me, the gospel has been the ferment of my life. But how do you, how do you take a young person and say that that way of power is not the way? You just kind of had fun, you know, so much. And you kind of, uh, you almost, you're a stand-up comedian in part, Guido, kind of making fun of them a little bit. But, uh, you know, Michael, this is as much for you as it is for Guido. You know, you're, you're talking to somebody. Who do we, another part of this question is, who do we point them to? You mentioned Veblen, but it's tough. Guido, you mentioned before in an interview, he writes in this very dense Latinized English. It's, it's tricky. Um, you know, what would be some very practical steps that somebody who's listening to this could say, all right. That other stuff's pretty colorful. You know, that life of warriors and a renewed hierarchy. I can, I can understand that hierarchy, hierarchy. Uh, how, do we, how do we ask some well, people to say, this is pretty interesting too? Well, you know, you know Mike, before we go there, I think yeah. that's part, I think, of the attraction to uh, Jordan Peterson yeah. for a lot of young people is he, 
he kind of fills that the void left by the uh, the dearth of fatherhood. So he gives them, you know, some kind of I wouldn't call it fatherly advice, but at, le- at least it's it's advice from an older man to a younger man about how to be a man. Mm-hmm. Which you know, kids are a lot of those younger guys d- didn't get that from a father. So here they, and I think we also see that in the attraction for a lot of young men t- toward Eastern Orthodoxy and having a spiritual father that they need some kind of authority out there, or at least they, they feel that they lacked something in their upbringing. So they're trying to fill this kind of psychic gap and not necessarily with the best things, but like you were saying with, with Evola, um, you know, this, this warrior model, you know, and these other, these kinds of, uh, hyper-masculine models or, you know, without, you know, how I, I have six sons, right? So I've had to be confronted <laughs> with how, how to how to teach them how to be men. In fact, it's kind of a funny with my two youngest. So if we have to go clean up the the cow the cow shed, I said, we're going to go do some man stuff, boys. Let's go. <laughs> but uh, I mean, but but I I think there's all these different uh, factors, you know, all these variables. Right now, with, with you know, with young people in particular, so so where do you point them? Yeah, yeah, it's it's that's interesting. You said, um, yeah, it's a very difficult. I, I, when you ask this, uh, I don't know. I don't know I, what struck me. I, uh, I was at this uh, uh, Waldorf school, and we were just uh, drafting, uh, I don't know, some kind of a mission statement, and. Uh, and everybody says, "What should be the main? What should be the main tenets? The main, you know, the main messages and vibes of this mission statement, manifesto of the school." I mean, it was a, it was a big moment. I mean, small school and so on. And they were saying this, that, and the other. And I said, "How about you know? How about love and peace?" Should we? They, were saying, they were saying everything but those. And I said, "Could could they be somewhere?" And this was mostly women. And they said, "Nah, nah." Waldorf school, by the way, not yeah. the, yeah, not, not a Nazi stud farm. This I've was, been at those meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, then, nah, it's too hippie. And, um, and they were, and of course they were saying diversity, diversity, oh, diversity, yeah. diversity. Tolerance. Did they mention that too? No. no. Yes. To- yes. 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 <laughs> in, conju- in, in conjunction with diversity. diversity yes, of course. Was, but then again, you know, it's like we shouldn't make too much of that. This is this is propag- This is chemical communication. Uh, a lot of it, in, to the point of intoxication. Mm-hmm. So again, I think it goes back to you. So Mike, you're asking, where do you point them? Not like, yeah, take the leisure class. You give them a book, come back, read it, and come back. No, that's not <laughs> going to work. Um, it, the, the propaganda of the system is 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 massive, and. Um, and I think the first step is actually sheltering, sheltering as much as we can from it to begin. Uh, after, which is already requires a lot of energy. It's like all, a lot of chemicals are coming, sprayed mm-hmm. on us. Yeah. And we have, we have to deflect that. And then as we were talking about, you know, the, the, the tripartition and economy of psychiatry and, and whatever, and, uh, and, and then we're talking about Gerald Hurd. If you can, if you start to think better I'm, I'm not going to say straight but better 
then the then you can organize your your subloop and and uh, your little beehive ant loop better. You can actually start seeing it. Um, yeah. That's a relevant so, book. I'll just the interjection would be mentioned. Gerald heard a book called Pain and Time. It's good. You know, you're going to read it. You know, people are listening yeah, to Joe Rogan. Bad. They're talking about psychedelics and things. He's talking about expanding our consciousness, but there's a lot of good insights there. You know, yeah. the key term for me is he talked about a strangulated individuality. You know, that's what we're producing. And for sure we are. Go on. Yeah. So uh, what do we do now? I think, I think it's, uh, and I was mentioning that, you know, often people ask you know, when I find myself in these debates and there's, well, what do we do? What do you, or you've criticized, you've criticized, you've criticized, what do you propose? What do you propose? And unless I have a solution now, right here, I mean, I'm not going, you know, whatever. You're just, you're, you're just destroying. You're not building anything new. First of all, that's not true. But I think even, even, even in the destructive part, even opposing the, the pheromones and suggesting how to think instead, mm-hmm. I, think, I think that, I mean, if we're to be able to shield our own while you do this work of reconversion, is already an enormous, enormous first, mm-hmm. first step. So I think that people were impatiently asking for a blueprint. I would stay, say to them, chill a moment, join us in to do this work of reconversion into thinking because that's paramount. And yeah. then when we're gonna have people who can think normally a little bit, then you can go on and see how do we organize ourselves, assuming we have enough energy and enough time to create an, a subloop where which we can try to create a different way of organizing society the way we want to, mm-hmm. then it will all come. And, and some friends of mine are saying that the two can go together. Mm-hmm. You, know, you do a work of, 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 of catechism in a way uh, and, mm-hmm. and of psychological re, re overhauling along with trying new communal solution for exchange and yeah. production away like Amish style. But I don't know what the Amish are doing. And from what you tell me, I'm sure they're great. And I would love to know more. But even more, I understand they're anti-technology, right? To a yes. certain extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's great. I think we can do Amish. This, this anti-technology, this, technology, this technophobia that there is in a lot of uh, anarchistic circles, I don't, think it's, uh, I don't think we need to have that. I think if technology, it could be our friend as well. And we can do an Amish with heavy reliance on technology. Uh, why not? Mm-hmm. So. Fascinating. Concluding thoughts, Mr. Michael Martin. Well, I think piggybacking what, what Guido just said, part of it is you, you said we got to learn how to shelter from this, which is what I've noticed in teaching is by the time I get the kids, they're so conditioned that it takes a lot of unraveling if they're ever, you know, they're going to get there. It's so they're they're, And I, you know, I remember being so I was in my twenties and I, I remembered thinking that uh, where it dawned on me was probably 23 that actually all those cereal commercials and Barbie commercials that I saw as a five and six year old was actually conditioning, right? It's like, okay, now I see what I've been. I thought the devil left us alone until we were of age, but no, <laughs> that's not how it goes. It starts through advertising. So, and I noticed with my own kids, right? So we homeschool and 
which they keep sheltered for a much longer period so they can experience uh things that are more real like practical like shoveling cow shit you know or building things or whatever it happens and that's what was great about being a waldorf teacher is those kids were exposed to all these different kinds of practical activities and given a historical picture of, of the world but you also had these people also filling their brains with all those buzzwords you just mentioned in the mission statement right so there was a, there was a that was a, one of my biggest uh, disappointments of from being a Waldorf teacher was that was still there. They were still agents of the state, you know, in a way, or agents of, of the zeitgeist. So, so I think th- those things are important. This this idea of sheltering and 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 creating the space for that for the, for that at least that conversation to happen, like we're doing right now, right? And and I think that that's what we we've heard from some people of our form from our former podcast that you know, <laughs> thank you. I don't feel so alone anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, this is great. You know, and, and Guido, you're going to be back again. We call you kind of a regular. And uh, next time we talk to you, you're going to be you're right now in Hollywood, California, and you're going to be moving to Umbria. Did you say? Yes. Yes. Umbria. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> You, you, you have got to go come visit me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Count on it. I think now maybe I in the reason. fall. Maybe in the fall.